0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. When Diplomacy Fails presents a Master's Dissertation by Zach Twomley. Chapter 1. What is Honour? To ascertain the significance of honour in Burton's July Crisis experience one must first establish what is meant by honour in the early 20th century. This can be achieved by tracing its development and placing honour in context. By achieving this research objective, it should then be clear how multi-layered honour was as a concept in 1914 Britain. As this chapter will also highlight, it was because of the ambiguity and vagueness of honour that both anti-interventionists and interventionists alike were able to claim that they acted with honour in mind. While undertaking a detailed analysis of the origins of honour in the early 20th century is a task far beyond the scope of this dissertation. There is none the less value in examining at some length had the concept found its way into the correspondence, rhetoric and general discourse of Britain's statesmen. Honour as a code can be sourced from the early modern traditions of duelling that originated on the continent. Many historians attest to the impact that the jewel had on creating and disseminating the Code of Honour that came to be adopted within the discourse of stately diplomacy in the 19th century. Indeed, despite the complete cessation of dueling as a practice in Britain by 1852 and popularly decades before that, the Code of Honour remained, thanks to the transferal of it from the person to the nation. The Code of Honour included reputation, status, credit and prestige and, apart from such socioeconomic factors, was also affected by moral conduct. Such moral conduct, which included, in the case of both male and female, the issue of sexual morality, appears at first glance to be something of an awkward quality to transfer from the person to the state. However, it is less critical to match every personal measurement of honour with that of the Code of Honour followed by the state than it is to simply denote that the transfer from person to state occurred, and to provide evidence for such a transferal. Some historians claim that the French Revolution and the increased state formation of the 19th century explains this transfer Others uphold that the growth of nationalism and nationalist feeling enabled statesmen to apply the Code of Honour to international relations for their own ends. It is certainly visible within the discourse of British statesmen in one of the earliest of Queen Victoria's wars, the First Opium War against China in 1839. Glenn Melankin explains how honour manifested itself even in this early stage in the foreign relations of states in the 19th century. Quote, Honour governed what we today call linkage or credibility, because loss of honour would affect Britain's moral power to influence the actions of other states by undermining confidence in its ability to follow through in its decisions. These states must not forget, when facing a British frigate, however small, for example, that the flag of England must be respected. End quote. It is difficult to ascertain a precise cut-off point for the transferal of honour from person to nation. This is because history is full of examples of the British Empire demanding respect for its rights. As early as the mid-17th century, the British Crown claimed sovereignty over its seas along the English Channel, an exercise designed to wrest submissive and symbolic salutations from foreign ships. Such behaviour, ensuring that one's rivals respected the flag, was in itself a code of honour. It introduces us to another quality associated with honour, that of prestige. In the case of the 19th century, while Britain's empire across the world was under construction and British delegates came into contact with representatives from all continents, acquiring a sense of satisfaction from one's rivals or would-be subjects was a critical task. It signified that the state possessed the power to act, and recognition of this power by one's rivals increased the reputation attached to the flag. How other states perceived the British Empire greatly affected its prestige. It was at its highest when, for example, a single insult in a far-off Arabian backwater could mobilise a formidable British response. Such acts forced Britain's imperial rivals to take notice one had to respect the name, the flag, the might of the British Empire, and one did so by honouring delegates appropriately in diplomatic relations. Just as a gentleman could be insulted and the insult lead to a costly duel, so too could Britain's empire be subject to an insult from a foreign power, which would lead to a duel not between two men, but between millions. Whereas a duel would be invoked to defend any insult or challenge to one's honour, In terms of nation-states, The remedy is violence, preceded by the polite manoeuvres and languages of diplomacy. If satisfaction is denied, there is a loss of reputation, status, honour. The violence is then redirected and internalised as humiliation and shame. The jewel was used to acquire satisfaction and to restore the offended party's sense of wounded honour. Should the gentleman fail in this quest for satisfaction, a loss in reputation, and the shame that would result from failing to answer such a challenge was the result. With the nationalisation of armies following the Napoleonic Wars, and the increased public interest in the country's affairs that resulted, one state became the gentleman, vulnerable to insult and prepared to defend his good name if challenged, while the battlefield became the location of the duel. Moreover, a failure to answer a challenge to one's honor could be met with shame, just as a failure of the gentleman to answer an insult would see him shamed in the eyes of his peers. Shame can be defined as a sentiment, a state of mind, an emotional disposition experienced when one feels depressed, dishonored, or belittled, or when one sees oneself exposed to criticism or even disgrace by a certain deed which has been uncovered. Shame was thus a powerful incentive for action. It has even been studied in terms of pressuring other states to act, along with the societal norms of the international system. Podcast footnote. An original academic footnote here provided a modern example of the international system attempting to use shame to pressure China on its human rights record. By placing the shame on the Chinese, the impetus would be felt in Beijing to change lest shame would be continually felt in the norm of a burden that held it back in other areas, such as its ability to lecture others on the nature of human rights in the UN. End podcast footnote. Just as honour was associated with issues like prestige, justice, morality and reputation, so too could shame be associated with humiliation and weakness. The association of a state with shame detracted from its reputation, standing and honour on the international stage, and thus states sought to avoid being associated with it wherever possible. Honour could not be gained or half-lost, it was either possessed by a state or a person, or it was perceived to be absent. It could thus be claimed that to be in possession of honour, quote, implies not merely a habitual preference for a given mode of conduct, but the entitlement to a certain treatment in return, End quote. As Ute Frevert effectively noted, Defending one's honor involved reinforcing the following to one's rivals quote, I am not a weakling. I will defend my place as a great power. I will not let others doubt my standing, and I command respect. If offended, I will demand satisfaction, and if it is not given voluntarily, I will compel the offender to face my arms. End quote. By asserting such terms, one made it clear that the international system should continue to treat one state with the same level of respect as before, and regard it in the same level of standing as it had stood before the challenge was issued. In this marketplace of public opinion, where a rival's perception and a state's reputation consisted much of that state's actual power, responding to challenges and insults was a critical part of international relations. Weakness, shame and humiliation had been experienced by Britain's rivals in the years before 1914, and whenever such events occurred, they tended to alter the European balance of power. Britain, though with a less militarised official culture than in Germany, for example, was no exception to the rules that the Code of Honour posited. In fact, having cultivated an empire for the past century, Britain had more to lose if it failed to answer any perceived challenges to its honour in 1914. And thus its statesmen felt compelled to invoke honour for the purpose of defending that empire's prestige and standing. These men may have interpreted honour in different ways and as a result, may have suggested different solutions to the July Crisis, but all statesmen invoked honour for the sole purpose of defending the British Empire, as Julian Pitt Rivers claimed, quote, just as possession is said to be nine-tenths of the law, so the achievement of honor depends upon the ability to silence anyone who would dispute the title. End quote. Possessing the practical power to physically silence a challenge, as seen in the First Opium War, was one thing. It was quite another, too, by virtue of one's reputation, the standing of the Empire and the prestige of its armed forces, to compel obedience by name value alone. Just as honour was at stake for those that would advocate intervention in the First World War, the non-interventionists also acted with honour in mind. Though both sides possessed varying opinions on British policy and responsibilities, they both held honour in similarly high regard. Some would argue that while British honour was not involved in a warlike policy at the continent, it was bound up elsewhere, in peace. Others simply argued that, owing to the absence of written documentation imploring concrete British action by international law, British honour simply was not at stake. Indeed, a cadre of veteran Liberal MPs rallied against the very idea of intervention, yet by no means believed honour to be a non-issue for Britain at any stage. Podcast footnote. British politics in 1914 was split between the Tories, or Conservative and Unionist Party, and the Whigs, or Liberal Party. Since 1906 the Liberals had been in power, and despite their need of the Irish Parliamentary Party, the House of Commons' third-largest party, for support, as well as the rise of Labour influences their hold on power remained, at least on paper, strong. End podcast footnote. An insult had not been directed at the Empire, and thus Britain was not obliged to answer the challenge to its honour. It was that simple. If honour were at stake, conversely, then these same non-interventionists were emphatic that they would have argued for British action on the continent. Perhaps the most striking testament to this came moments after Sir Edward Grey had attempted to rouse the House of Commons and persuade them of the need to intervene on the 3rd of August 1914. Podcast footnote. Sir Edward Grey was the British Foreign Secretary and thus one of those men primarily responsible for the British entry into the war. On the afternoon of the 3rd of August 1914, he gave a speech that made his case for intervention in the war. This speech will be examined in a later chapter. End podcast footnote. Ramsay MacDonald, the leader of the Labour Party and in opposition, added revealingly, quote, If the nation's honour were in danger, we would be with him. End quote. The vast majority of non-interventionists then did not deride honour. To them it was as important a concept and code as it was to those advocating war. They simply interpreted the code of honour differently. In conclusion then, for the men of summer 1914, their interpretations of what honour meant and how it affected their conduct certainly differed, but in no British statesmen of the early 20th century were honour and its related issues absent. British statesmen of 1914, just like their ancestors, operated on the thesis that their empire was the most prestigious, glorious and prosperous in the world and still expanding. Such qualities necessitated a respectful reception from whatever foreign delegates greeted their British equivalents. Britons were taught from a young age, especially with the recent advent of the scout movement, of the goodness, value, prestige, virtue, morality, and honourable nature of the empire. They were also taught in turn that such a world power status deserved respect, and that any lack of respect, or or still, any insult necessitated a response. The more effective and swifter that response, the higher one's reputation could be said to stand. Certainly, detractors of the Code of Honour existed, and in fact, some were commercially successful because of their views. Perhaps the most distinguished of these was Norman Angel, who in his 1909 best-selling pamphlet, Europe's Optical Illusion, noted that Honour was, quote, Like an oath, Serving with its vague yet large meaning to intoxicate the fancy, its vagueness and elasticity make it possible to regard a given incident at will as either harmonious or a casus belli. We call it maintaining the national prestige, enforcing respect, and I know not what other high-sounding name, but it amounts to the same thing in the end. end quote. Angel captured here not only the very names under which honour could operate, maintaining the national prestige and enforcing respect, for example, but also the very vagueness of the concept itself. Not only could it intoxicate the fancy, but it could also give one the ability to interpret any number of incidents as either harmless or casus belli. Thus, honour, as Angel understood it, combined the worst of both worlds, since not only could it inspire great passion when invoked, but it could also be invoked or not invoked to suit the circumstances. Since honour-related issues like prestige, morality, justice, reputation, standing, and credit were easy to locate in the pre-1914 world, it is a little surprise that Britain's statesmen referred to it on such a regular basis. Of course, without the presence of Britain's rivals alluding to identical principles and holding in reverence the exact same sister issues of honour as Britain herself did, the pre-1914 world would have been far less emotionally, ideologically and imperially charged. One historian has even claimed that, quote, a compelling argument can be made that in the absence of the competitive quest for standing, a war between the great powers in Europe in the early decades of the 20th century would have been much less likely, end quote. One of the primary research aims of this dissertation is to assess the accuracy of the above statement by demonstrating throughout this work the extent to which honour coloured the dialogue, influenced the actions and entered the debate of those involved in both pushing for British intervention in the war and arguing against it. The next chapter of this dissertation will examine honour from the perspective of the pro-intervention side of the British media and state. This dissertation mini series has been divided into six parts for easier listening. You have reached the end of one part, but not the end of the entire mini series, so please check your downloads for the remaining parts.